Nobody needs to know about our secret agreement, right? Our secret agreement to never pick the same thing twice? No, that if we were going to do... Well, we do need to talk about that, but... Um, our secret agreement that if we didn't like how it went after three episodes, we're oh. never going to do it again mm-hmm. and never tell anybody that we did it? Uh, no, they don't need to know. Okay. Then we won't talk about that in the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Res. I'm Riley, and I'm here with my friend Daniel. Hey. And today, we are going to talk about the book, The Drunkard's Walk. But first, we've got some follow-up that we're going to address from uh, previous episodes. And I think it's only it's only me who's got follow-up. Yeah, I, I got nothing. Except maybe to, to mention off the bat that things might sound different than normal. And that's because, for some reason, we're in the same place at the same time. Physically. Mm-hmm. Which is new. Doesn't happen. So, Daniel is here with me in Seattle. And we decided why not take advantage of the lovely day. And, uh... <laughs> I think we should have in the show notes a picture of this lovely day. You want to take a picture? I'll take a picture really quick. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's great podcast weather. There's the lovely day. <laughs> So, we may be talking over each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Forgive us. It's a live recording, as opposed to all the other non-live recordings that we do. But what is it that you want to follow up on? I have... I've got follow-up for episode two, about gravity, mm-hmm. and episode three, about dark souls. Mm-hmm. The I'll go with the episode three one first, because it's very quick. Okay. Um... I just wanted to mention there were a couple of uh, content creators I forgot to talk about. So I talked about Lobos Jr., mm-hmm. speedrunner, challenge runner. I also wanted to mention a guy named Vati Vidya. And it's, yeah, it's a weird name. Um, but he does all of the Dark Souls lore videos. Mm. So he's very well known for like making super good lore videos. So if you want to learn more about like the story of Dark Souls, his channel is the right one to watch. Mm. And then there's another guy called the Happy Hob, which is a weird name, uh, but his his whole speed running shtick is that he does games. He does zero hit runs. No. So he's done every Dark Souls and Bloodborne, and Demon Souls, taking zero hits. Yeah, I'm glad that you started off with the one that's gonna make me feel physical pain. Because <laughs> like anytime you talk about these guys. With with these with these insane constraints they put on themselves, it, it may like I, I just feel the hurt that it must like that you must go through to achieve this. Oh man, okay, it's 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 good to it's good to have those resources. Can you say their names real quick one more time? Yeah, Vati Vidya and the Happy Hob. We'll put those names in the show notes. Cool. Cool. Um. And then I've got a piece of follow-up from our dear friend Ewald about the Gravity episode. And Ewald says, based on our discussion, we talked a lot about how Sandra Bullock's character has to find something to keep her going. Mm -hmm. Like the conversation that she had with... If you will. If you would. No spoilers, but... Oh. 
We can believe that. <laughs> Sorry. So Ewald says, you said, meaning me, you didn't really buy any of that. How would you compare it to The Martian and Mark Watney? Have you seen The Martian? I have not seen The Martian. Okay. Which... I, I feel like I had I had heard enough of the plot points uh-huh. that that you might still be able to make the comparison and I might still know what you're talking about. So what what exactly does he does you all mean by that? What I think he means, and I think it's a great question, is why was it easy or before I even get there? I did empathize much more with Mark Watney's struggle to get off of Mars or to at least survive on Mars than I did with Sandra Bullock's struggle to survive in uh, the upper atmosphere. Mm -hmm. I guess his question is why? Mm -hmm. So The Martian, just to give like a two second summary of the movie, it's about a guy who's on Mars, something goes wrong, big dust storm, everybody who's there with him leaves. And he gets like left behind Mm -hmm. so he has to survive on mars alone with very little resources for an indefinite amount of time so barring all of the whether this is like a thing that could happen or not happen Mm -hmm. the martian is plausible we'll say gravity is eminently false (laughs) okay the one of the things that i think helps the Martian much more is that survival is just a given in the movie. It is not something that they really deeply examine. In, in the Martian, they do. Yeah, they don't like. They just don't even ask the question. Really, like mm-hmm. it's a given that Mark Watney wants to survive the entire time. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm just, I'm doing this because this is who I am, and this is like, I want to get home. Yeah. Um. And because he's kind of a nerd and he's like going through and just he's doing stuff that he thinks is cool anyway. So it's not a movie about finding a purpose to continue living. It's mm. the, the continuing living is the premise of the movie. Whereas in Gravity, I felt like it was just one of those like this is what the movie is asking. The answer I did not find sufficient. Hmm. And if I remember correctly from the episode, there were there were things that uh oh my goodness what is sandra bullock's character what's her name dr stone stone there there were it it was kind of weird that a movie with basically only one character dr stone didn't take the time to do that or Mm. didn't take the time to really like lay out at least from your perspective the reasons why she decided to keep going yeah so that's fair that's a thing yeah, I thought The Martian was a cool story about survival. How would you survive being stranded on Mars? Not so much a story about why would you want to survive if you were stranded alone on Mars. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So hopefully that answers Ewald's question. Oh, so you didn't answer it until just now? Yeah. Oh, I see. It's, yeah. like, a, it's like a radio show. It's got to listen. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm being really cagey with all my friends now. I don't. I don't talk to them about things anymore. Uh, 
was there anything else from the previous episodes that you knew you wanted to talk about? No, I don't think I've got anything else. Cool. The last thing in follow-up then isn't about a past episode, but it's actually about the future of the podcast. We are going to get started a subreddit for people to have discussions about the podcast and about the episodes on it. We'd really, really appreciate it if, uh, if those who are listening to this go there to give feedback. The main reasons that we're wanting to do that is that way it's public. Anybody can, can talk to each other about how they feel the episodes go or the content of the episodes. Um, and it also acts as a really nice archive. So the subreddit is going to be called uh, RESCast. So ResCast. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Cool. Daniel, do you want to go ahead and introduce The Drunkard's Walk for us? Absolutely. So The Drunkard's Walk is in my hands. It is a 2008 book from, and I am going to mess this up, <laughs> Leonard Mladenow. It's pretty good. Mladenow. Um... We'll have a link, obviously, to all information about this book and everything in the show notes so you can see how that's actually spelled. He's a Polish theoretical physicist who has written several popular explanations for scientific things. Uh, the Drunkard's Walk is his piece about randomness and how it affects society, some historical figures, but then also life in general, humanity in general. Contained within this book, there's actually more kind of casual explanations of statistic top, statistics topics than I even remember the first time I read this. There's actually quite a lot of that. You hit things like what is an expected value? What is regression to the mean? Conditional probability, how does it work? All those kinds of things, but in a very casual way. Kind of mixed in with that is a lot of stories about the important people in the history of statistics, which is one of the coolest parts of the book. Um, you're really going to need to read it to go through everybody's everybody's stories because they, they all kind of interconnect in many ways. There's a lot of generational development when you start with things like how does dice work like is it actually is this is this uh, something that the that the gods control or at the time that it mattered the god controls um all the way up to okay we've got some concept of statistics how do we solve problems with society uh, or at least the stories about people trying to solve problems with society leonard mladenow also I mentioned earlier was a has been a pretty prolific writer of popular science topics. Um, I want to mention that he has worked with the likes of Stephen Hawking to help make his brief history of time readable in the form of a briefer history of time. Um, both of which can still be difficult to read, I've heard, but at least it's better during their collaboration. Mm. Uh, and he's he's also done. A couple other uh, New York Times bestselling books about various physics topics and um, and other science topics. 
So, with all that said, I want to know a couple really basic things from you about this book, about your experience reading this book. First, did you enjoy it? That is a loaded question. There's follow-ups to this that might make it less loaded. Okay. So, I think something just to say right off the bat is because this is a non-fiction book, mm -hmm. not really such a concept as spoilers. Like, you can't, you can't really have spoilers for non-fiction. Sure. Um, so, the structure of this episode, rather than being divided into non-spoilers and then spoilers after the break will be, I think, something more along the lines of general discussion of the book, mm. followed by more specific, like, getting into, on this page, he said this, mm -hmm. let's talk about that type discussion. So, I'll try to keep things in the realm of the fairly general for now. Okay. Now, if I had to answer your question, did I like the book? There are things about the book that I liked. Mm -hmm. I would not read the book again. Yeah. I would put the book at like a three or a four out of seven on the Daniel scale. Oh, I forgot that we named it that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a fairly average experience. Very average. So average, in fact, that the silly scale doesn't have a number for it. So average. No, four is the number that you would four? put. Wait. Oh, we're not counting zero, are we? No, zero is not a number messing up my own scale never met the arabs yet so i don't know about zero <laughs> hmm what was it that that you feel like puts it there like what about the book makes it so that way it's not something that you need to read again like you said uh when you described it it is a bit of a popular science popular math type book mm -hmm. I have a general distaste for those kinds of books. Mm -hmm. They frustrate me because I feel like they're just ankle deep. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't, in my mind, say anything that's really valuable, but that's because I think I'm already familiar mm -hmm. with concepts like the standard deviation, regression to the mean, expected value, Bayesian priors. Like mm -hmm. I knew what those all were going into the book. Mm -hmm. So being told like a second grader's explanation of here's what an expected value is, is like, great. Are you going to yeah. do like, what's something interesting about expected values you can tell me? And there were some moments in the book that I was like, okay, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, the things that I did enjoy about the book were the, like you said, the historical references talking about the people who came up with these theories, putting a lot of it in a more historical context mm -hmm. so i can imagine if you had asked me that eight years ago before i knew anything about statistics mm -hmm. my answer would be very different um but right now like having known and taken stat classes like it's mm -hmm. it's a very average read i i think i mentioned it during the the intro to the book but i don't even i didn't even remember that that it was that like introduction -y, I only remembered the stories mm, okay. so, which probably speaks to the fact that yeah I really liked those two mm -hmm. or I liked them more than like oh cool basic stat yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I, I think I can I can follow you with that. Was uh was because it, you described it as being a second grader's introduction. Um, does that have does that speak to the quality of the writing itself too, or is it more about the topics that made you feel like it was kind of juvenile? Sounds really bad to say, but like mm. for for younger people, it was maybe not juvenile, but amateur. Yeah. Like the writing is amateurish. That is a harsh thing to say, but I can back it up. Mm -hmm. I've got a whole book of it to back it up. So it's right here. It's called The Drunkard's Walk. It's full of very. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that was a bad joke, but. I, I, I see where you were going with it now. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not super well written, mm -hmm. I would say. It's not poorly written by any means. It's at least accessible, mm -hmm. which is something that when you're writing about mathematics is important to make sure that it's for a general audience mm -hmm. accessible. So it is by no means, uh, you know, the work of a great artist, mm -hmm. but it, it's readable. One thing that I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast before is that, especially recently, I haven't had a lot of experience with, with reading books. Mm -hmm. That sounds like really terrible, <laughs> but it's true. I had, there was a long, long time where I was playing video games or I was like, I, I've been really out of the loop with it. Is there is there an easy way to kind of to kind of explain what you mean when you say that the writing style is amateurish are there like are there like comparisons that you can make to like or is it or is it a really fuzzy art i don't know i don't know about it no so there are some specific things that i can say about his writing that i think would not earn him any sort of literary prize um he is not very economical with his words so sometimes he will just go on and on about something that needs no going on about. Yeah. The vocabulary in places is superfluous. Like he there there are just words he doesn't need to use that mm -hmm. he uses to I think I think some educational writers do this is they want the book to be accessible, but every once in a while they'll throw in one of these like words that pumps up the credibility quote-unquote of how academic they are there's lots of that in the book um there are many tangents mm -hmm. that he goes down that are in the not even related to the historically valuable uh context that he's putting these things in mm -hmm. that just don't make any sense um so there's there's just lots of loose ends you can imagine if this book were like a ball of yarn that it would be kind of messy mm -hmm. lots of little bits coming out of it that go nowhere if you picked it up and shook it around you could probably get rid of most of it mm. to that end this is more of a side thing but did you notice this is kind of ironic due to the content of the book did you notice that the first three or four chapters all had 20 pages no yes I didn't notice that. <laughs> I think one, it's kind of funny because that 
if it if it was like a truly random process or uh-huh. like randomness was in there, uh-huh. we would still expect to see that. Uh-huh. But it, it always made me feel like, is he kind of filling space? Mm. And his benchmark was 20 pages per chapter. Were there any shorter than 20 pages? I didn't see any. Okay. Towards the end of the book, he started going over 20 pages. Okay. Interesting. It's like... It's a really small thing, but it could be connected to some of these concerns that you have about the the writing quality. Yeah. The subtitle of the book is How Randomness Rules Our Lives. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, the biggest nail in the coffin for me on the, the quality of the writing of this book. Having a subtitle is something that's very popular for bullshit books. <laughs> yeah. It should at least deliver on that promise. Mm-hmm. How randomness rules our lives. Mm-hmm. The book has almost no substantive thing to say about the effects of randomness in your everyday life. It has some mm-hmm. very general statements that it makes to say, like, sometimes things happen randomly. And sometimes you should look at things through the lens of probability and not through causality which is wrong because causality exists independent of probability Mm. but i think that the structure of the book and the central thesis is like is just very muddied throughout Mm -hmm. i don't think that there's like a clear delivery on that promise Mm. i i can probably agree with that However, like that the 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 delivery was muddied throughout the book. Um, I I I don't necessarily agree with the fact that he didn't make a case though for for the role of randomness in people's lives. I think mm-hmm. he I think he did that several times in different ways. There were um, actually especially through some of the lives of the people who contributed to statistics. One of the, or actually several of the stories end very poorly for people. Mm-hmm. And they they showed that these really like kind of broken people in a lot of ways, they were not usually very, <laughs> they weren't glowing examples of how to be a person. They, they would meet very poor ends. I can't, I can't remember the names too well uh, all the time, but one dude one dude gets guillotined yeah. one dude dies in poverty because he's trying to like he follows the wrong thread uh, and thinks he has to like give up everything for God or whatever one dude uh, gets on the bad side of the Italian families and just gets completely cast out I feel like even those really basic examples are ways that he was trying to show that you've got to realize that systems outside of your control can which are effectively in some cases random do have a big impact on your life and there are ways to mitigate that which i feel like he only touched on towards the end but i still think he touched on them touched on might be the right way to say it like Mm. your summary that you just gave is clearer than anything that's in the book Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> For talking about the book, yeah. <laughs> right? And I also, like, I also think that 
philosophically he only goes ankle deep on these mm-hmm. same subjects mm-hmm. so he like like i mentioned he talks about something like causality mm-hmm. and he does not do a good job of treating it with care mm-hmm. he talks about determinism mm-hmm. he talks about chance he talks about kind of implicitly free will mm-hmm. all while trying to make some sort of grander statement about the effect of probability mm-hmm. but he does this weird thing where he never actually addresses fundamentally the the probabilistic nature of lives like he never goes all the way to say like we do not have free will and because we do not have free will every outcome is probabilistic so you will find yourself at some end of a bell curve mm-hmm. because of that consequence that was actually something else that i did notice i agree with you it was funny to have uh to have him talk about humans from the outside perspective like that or excuse me from the inside perspective outside them there's a lot of randomness mm-hmm. in, in in his story but he never goes to say that there's a lot of randomness because all, a lot of humans might also have no free will or whatever right interacting as completely random agents right <laughs> so therefore like he, he didn't point being is that i agree with you there were a lot of points where you felt like he's trying to make a case for a the effect of randomness on like his life but isn't willing to say that he himself might also have random uh forces inside his own decision making which is kind of interesting kind of strange yeah and this is because i think whenever you're writing a book for a general audience mm-hmm. you can't make many strong statements mm-hmm. so things get very watered down i think this is an example of something that is incredibly watered down either because of that fact or it's possible that he himself just does not have a nuanced view on the topic like many scientists which i think is really interesting that there's a, a lot of people in science that don't have strong understandings of philosophy Mm -hmm. and who will by like bias of being in a specific scientific field think that they're somehow exempt from the learnings of that field so that's something that i wish that he would have gone much deeper into Mm -hmm. the actual ramifications of randomness not just in systems but in like throughout life Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like this kind of segues over to my my other major question that I wanted to ask you generally about the book. We've kind of been dancing around it a little bit. Can you identify what he would want for a reader to actually do after this? Does he have an agenda that he is pushing for a large number of people? I don't. There's nothing explicit in the book that makes me think... Mm -hmm. He's out to, like, there's no call to action. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there, if there is, it's a very, very tame one. Probably just along the lines of, like, like you were saying earlier, by the way, there's randomness in systems, so don't... He says this in the book, be sure not to judge people solely based on their outcomes, but also based on their ability, mm-hmm. which... I wish there was a way to do that right i don't understand how you do that like how do you judge a person's ability 
other than looking at the outcome of what they've tried to do. So I think it's kind of a nonsensical thing to say. So I don't think there's like a stated call to action in the book. I think the true call to action is general scientific literacy. Okay, okay, yeah. Which isn't the worst thing in the world. Having like raising a or raising an awareness of probabilistic systems among a large population could still be useful in the long run. So yeah, I'm cool with that. And there are some things that he does go into in the book that I think are topics worth knowing about that aren't directly related to probability. Mm -hmm. Things like confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Like it's good for people to be more aware of biases that they have. Mm -hmm. So I think there are good things to take away from the book, but I don't think it's a very pointed book. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to what you were saying about the thing where he was talking about how people should be aware of the role of randomness in people's success and how you felt that it wasn't very satisfactory to just have him say that but then not have an alternative. Um, I wonder if that was more of like he was just trying to point out a tragedy and make sure that people knew about that it is kind of tragic that there are some people who that do have the capacity to be great but because of the way that probability or at least probabilistic systems play out they just fail over and over and over again and never actually succeed mm -hmm. I, I do want to say something here which is the statement that you just made mm -hmm. about people in probabilistic systems mm -hmm. So the, the probabilistic systems bit, I think, is a very important piece of information that he never quite made clear in the book. Mm. The difference between randomness mm -hmm. and probability. Mm. This is something that frustrated me throughout the book, was that he would describe hedge fund managers mm -hmm. as their performance being random when really it's it's part of a probabilistic system mm -hmm. the, and the reason why this was it's a fine distinction to make but that it frustrated me was that if you are a naturalist mm -hmm. if you're a person who believes that everything that you experience in the world is a causal chain that has things that happened before it mm -hmm then the only place that a naturalist finds real true randomness mm -hmm. at least any uh, that we think is in quantum systems so the very mm -hmm. very smallest level and then everything else has a naturalistic explanation mm. i i think that i might be able to fill in that gap i think the gap is filled with chaotic systems at the stage that we're at right now, scientific, like scientifically, mm -hmm. there are some systems that are at its core deterministic, but yep. either can't follow the the event chain, yep. or the we can't represent the data with enough, well, with infinite accuracy, <laughs> like right. Um, and so he, I had read a lot of the examples that he made in the book as being chaotic systems. So for the example of hedge fund managers, I had read those as being 
there are some things that you know that you can start with in that system like picking the right the right funds mm-hmm. uh, i'm betraying like the the limit of my knowledge of of the financial sector <laughs> by saying what probably is a, <laughs> the wrong word there um picking the right things to invest in uh-huh. uh but because it's so much bigger than than just what you start with time goes on and forces that we don't completely understand act on it which i think he was many times speaking of as randomness when it really was just a chaotic system exactly right systems that are sensitive to initial conditions are not necessarily random systems right okay they might look random Mm -hmm. and i think that probability like the study of statistics and probability Mm -hmm. helps us get a good idea of these chaotic systems and what the outcomes will be mm-hmm. given some chance uh, or some rather some confidence interval I think yeah. is the right way to say it that does not make them random and that is something that he constantly mm-hmm. confuses throughout the book so is saying that these systems that things that are happening are random when in reality they're deterministic but they're just chaotic is it is that one of the going back to your major concern about the popularization of the language in this book is that something that maybe he consciously decided man it takes a lot more words to say like to explain chaos every couple paragraphs i can just call it randomness and people will get it is it like do you think that that was like one of those calls that you were like i wish he didn't do that i would have thought that Except there is a passage where he explicitly tries to strike down determinism. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So the fact that he like calls that out mm-hmm. makes me think, well, I, I clearly do not understand his worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's apparently not deterministic. I think that uh, what might not have been very well explained by him is that he can at our stage of development as like a species he could consider the world to be functionally non-deterministic right or something like that that would be the only way that i could make that make sense to me yeah that's a totally fair statement to make Mm -hmm. but he doesn't try to strike down determinism using that argument Mm -hmm. he tries to strike it down on almost purely philosophical grounds Mm -hmm. Uh, i think it is it's very accurate to say that we obviously do not have the capability to know we're not Laplace's demon. We don't know everything that's going on on the earth the entire time that it's been going on. Yeah. But I think probability is the tool that we have invented to cope with that mm-hmm. rather than a natural consequence of everything's random. <laughs> <laughs> So random XD. Thank you for that. I obviously had some problems with the book. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to ask you what you think of this statistic. 2.2%. Uh-huh. This is the percent chance that if you picked a random page in this book, it would have a picture on it. You you figured that out? Why did you do that? 
Uh, How did you get through this book? Uh, for for those who 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 aren't uh, lords like us, um, we often joke about how I need pictures in my books. Like I'm talking like uh, like oh, what's what's the kids' book with the with the Good Night Moon? Yeah, that thing? it's called Good Night Moon. Yeah. Um, and so he's astounded that I was able to make it through a book where only 2.2% of the pages had pictures. Um, I don't think it has a lot to do with this particular book. I mentioned it at the top. I'm reading more, mm -hmm. getting more into it. So uh, the joke will have a lot less weight, unfortunately, because it's a pretty funny joke. I was only <laughs> using the joke to actually ask you, yeah, like, how did you feel about reading the book because you haven't read many books you said recently like was it hard for you to read it was it easy this is one of those things that i'm actually somewhat proud of myself for accomplishing this mm -hmm. i had regimented out the chapters i was going to read oh so I, I did like a significant amount of planning to make this happen audience leading up to this i i joked with riley like all the time that yeah i'm gonna read it at the last second or like i'll read it on the plane uh but i actually i actually feel pretty good about that i took the time to actually read it what this says about the book mm -hmm. comparing that to another book that i'm reading right now is that it was probably more of a chore than other books especially new books that i'm reading um so it could speak to some of those things you were talking about earlier about how like there's some things that this or there's some things about this book that make it a little bit harder to read sometimes mm -hmm. like the tangents and like like the fact that it's it's somewhat difficult to tell where it's going all in all though i still really enjoyed it i enjoyed reading it a second time and something that we haven't really spoken too much about directly is this the the stories of like Laplace, uh, God, Bernoulli, yeah, the, the dude in, in Italy, the, the Italian dude, there's Ketele, yeah, dude got his head chopped off, which by the way, Fermat. that one was pretty much the only story that I actually remembered from the first time I read it, uh -huh. because it's so like, so nuts, yeah, that, I, th I feel like life during the French Revolution was was crazy, right? no matter what. But this dude was like, he was a, he was a scientist, he was a chemist, he was making some really good uh, contributions and everything. Still like, got himself tied in with the, with the femme générale, no. Was this Lavoisier that you're talking about? Possibly. You said chemist. Oh, you I think wrote... he was the only chemist in this book? Yeah, yeah. You, you speak French better than I do. I just opened it up to the exact page. Levels. What are the odds of that? <laughs> Lord. Um, something about his story always stuck out to me, though. I'm just... The French Revolution is, is so so extreme. How, how you get to the point where... No matter what you're doing good for the, for the society or for your friends or your family or whatever, he was a tax collector... So he also did something bad according to the state. So he was just done. So he was just chop his head off. Yeah, they. Uh, he says in the book, the judge who is proceeding over Lavoisier's trial, 
uh, whenever Lavoisier said, I'm a scientist, the judge said, the Republic has no need of scientists. And they beheaded him. So. It's crazy. Yeah. And then I've already forgotten the rest of the names. Uh-huh. But they're all still really interesting. It's interesting to see those those really the, the harsh lives that people used to live back before air conditioning and you know <laughs> the uh, the deterministic paradise that we live in today. Right. Yeah. The one where we know at birth the exact course of a person's life. I I liked that a lot, and I liked how there was a rough ordering mm-hmm. of of which. We, he he said things were discovered in mm-hmm. and how certain discoveries inspired other discoveries mm-hmm. I like that a whole lot because um, that was probably the most useful part of the book for me actually was mm-hmm. being able to tie together these theories in a rough order of complexity mm-hmm. and being able to associate that with historically that you know it took us thousands of years to get to the point where we understood something as simple as a die mm-hmm. To 200 years later, we've got Bayesian priors, and we've figured out like how to answer questions about how accurate measurements are, given the fact that we don't know the true value of the measurement. Mm-hmm. Like, you go from from very simple problem to a very complicated problem, and the theory the the theorems reflect that, but you don't necessarily always learn that in your probability classes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the connected the connected nature of these scientific discoveries was also really interesting to have laid out. I don't think that everybody gets to see the on the shoulders of giants kind of perspective mm-hmm. where you pretty much everything in this book, even the dude that we started at the beginning with mm-hmm. in, in Italy still was inspired by previous thinkers. I'm comfortable saying that even though, like, I had a lot of problems with this book from a literary point of view. Mm-hmm. I had problems with some of the things that he says in the book. Mm-hmm. I do think that it would be better if there were more books like this that were associated with courses on the material. I actually, I actually wrote down on here that it felt kind of like a textbook, but like more chill. Mm-hmm. This would have been a really fun way to learn about statistics, but instead we had college textbooks, which are not nearly as chill. I think if if at the beginning of a Statistics 101 class, if we had read that book, mm-hmm. it would have given a much better mental framework for what we were about to learn than mm-hmm. a syllabus. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you can read it in under two weeks. You can read it in under a week. It's a very fast thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I both took computer science classes. I think books like this, if I would have had them before taking every computer science class I had, say on like algorithms, mm-hmm. would have immensely helped me to contextualize the things mm-hmm. that I was learning. Um, because like in this book, he doesn't go into what the actual, like here's the theorem for conditional probabilities. Here's how you write it out. It's mm-hmm. all very soft, whereas in classes, you almost exclusively only go, okay, here's the theorem for conditional probability, here's what you write in these slots, here's how you get your answer. Yeah. That was actually something that uh, more than one person that I work with now changed majors because computer science was too, like, 
overtly mathy at the beginning like that. Maybe maybe more of them, there would have been a higher probability that they would have stuck with the computer science major. Yeah. Maybe the distribution of skill is different now because of that. Oh my gosh. He talks about normal distributions in the book and the error law. He doesn't talk about really any other distributions though. Mm -hmm. He hints at the Pareto distribution mm -hmm. uh, whenever he talks about Hollywood films, mm. which is the whole 20% uh, have 80% of the benefit. Yeah. 80% of the money, 80% of the whatever is concentrated in the top 20% of the population. Mm -hmm. Which uh, honestly is one of the most important ones to think about if you're thinking about like, man, why is my, why is my, uh, uh, why is my podcast not getting like <laughs> right. the, the, the respect it deserves, man? It's a great podcast. Well, right. I couldn't think of a stupid one, so I just used our own. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of like a vape store or something. Why isn't my vape store as good as the big time vape stores? But that doesn't actually work. It does. I mean, I'm sure that the income of vape stores follows a Pareto distribution, not a normal distribution. Man. Um, the normal distribution is still pretty important if you're thinking about like what an average person is like. Totally. Because it is, it is hard to lose the perspective that generally speaking we're pretty average i think um especially depending on the sample that you're taking from but across the across the u.s we're probably pretty average that is a very safe statement to make <laughs> Fine, we, won't, we won't we won't go too far into that <laughs> i'm just just purely mathematically that's a safe thing to say is that most people will be close to the average mm -hmm. since we're normally distributed yeah if we were pareto distributed that would not be the case yeah there would just be a lot of losers <laughs> so who knows what kind of world are we living in i guess it i guess it depends on your measure of success now doesn't it wow that's now we're getting deep um i feel like we've talked about generally what this book is like for a little bit do you want to change tone with a uh with a bit of a word from our non-sponsors i think that would be an appropriate time do you want to get up and go to the bathroom while we introduce non-sponsors yeah yeah I'll, I'll get uh listeners are you small business owners are you tired of trusting a computer to do all of these calculations for you about your invoices to send bills to other people automatically, quickly, seamlessly, easily. If you're fed up with the growing dominance of the machines in today's modern era, then I'm proud to announce our first sponsor for this episode, Fresh Ebooks the pen and paper invoicing system. Fresh eBooks is a great way to keep track of all of the work that you're doing for all of the various clients that you have. It makes sending invoices slick and simple with the paper forms that you fill out and mail off 
to your customers. When a customer receives a fresh ebooks invoice, they almost always have a smile on their face as they gladly write a check and enclose it in the provided envelope to send back to fresh ebooks. So try fresh ebooks today. They'll send you a stack of paper invoices for you to use. If you call them or send them a letter with today's promo code, help me. Thanks to Fresh Ebooks for sponsoring the show. For the 10th anniversary of The Drunkard's Walk, we here at Vintage Books are pleased to announce a new edition of the book. Due to reader feedback, we see that there is a reason to change the name to better reflect the contents of the book. We're pleased to announce that the new version is called the Encyclopedia of Troubled Scientists with the tagline, Why Try Ever? All extant mentions of statistics, hard science, and useful information have been stripped so that we get to exactly what the readers really want. Sad stories about scientists who only received recognition for their work after their deaths. We've even thrown in a few more decapitations for you. Available today in all major bookstores. The Encyclopedia of Troubled Scientists. Why try ever? So, I had, I had a certain way that I wanted to ask questions to you about this, but I feel like you've made your position pretty clear about how you feel about not the duality, but like the, the relationship between determinism and either chaos or randomness or whatever buzzword you want to say for that. Can you speak a little bit more towards something that's not really addressed in the book very well, but something that you brought up earlier. If you do acknowledge that there are chaotic systems in many parts of life, do you, in knowing that they are still deterministic, do you still think of them as random? Or like, how does that work for you, I guess? Hmm. So the definition of random Mm -hmm. that makes the most sense to me mm -hmm. is outcomes of a process that no amount of prior knowledge would help you predict. Mm. I think that that's a good definition of randomness for me functionally every day because there are many things in life, mm -hmm. like you alluded to earlier, because we are not omniscient no matter how much data I get about those things, mm -hmm. I, will, I won't have any better predictions about how the outcome is going to be. So there's still you still have to hedge your bets and act as though things are effectively random in most cases. Mm -hmm. I think that's one answer to your question. Mm -hmm. I think there's kind of a different branch to go down, which, follow me on this, but is more about the illusion of the self Dude, our friends are going to love this episode. Go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, whenever you're talking about the way that you conceptualize the world to make yourself more comfortable within it, mm -hmm. I think that viewing things as deterministic, mm -hmm. you can know that rationally, 
and your self-conception will still not include that. Mm. Right? So, like, the free will thing is a great example of something that many people balk at because they feel like if they accept it rationally, suddenly it's going to change their outlook on life. And it can. And you have to be, like, very careful to not let that into your own self-conception. But, like, I say rationally believe that free will does not exist Mm -hmm. but i still act as though it does i have to like that is you don't have a choice in the matter you would say exactly (laughs) my hand has been forced um the whole conception of self and what tools you use to please your frontal cortex Mm -hmm. uh don't have to be reality Mm. i think that's actually kind of important about this book too from for the author but also for some of the historical figures that were in it there it's it's easy whenever it's it's told this casually as in the drunkard's walk or just this this shortly that people's rational understanding of the world must match how they function in the world mm-hmm. and i think that it would it's really important to realize that while reading this book that that's not the case i think that they even talk about this sometimes but maybe not very clearly there are like with laplace for example and all of the the work that he was doing in understanding probabilistic systems he still had like the same superstitions of the time he still he still functioned in a way where like magic existed uh, God would would intervene in his life and the lives of people that he knows. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like applying that to, to everybody in the book and then yourself too is really important to make sure that we understand. So I, I actually like that. I like that point. I don't understand the... It's almost egotistical in a sense. Mm-hmm. The whole dance of you have to be the living embodiment of the things that you find to be true. Mm-hmm as though you're going to somehow become like a perfect reflection of your beliefs. I don't think that that happens Hmm. um, due to random factors, (laughs) let's say. But I think that the concept of randomness can be deeply uncomfortable for people. Hmm. And so the the attack that he presents on causality, Hmm. I think is more trying to soothe those fears in people than it is about um, maybe really actually trying to deconstruct the naturalist argument Hmm. or the determinist argument. Hmm. Like, does it make you uncomfortable to think that there are things in your life that are random or chaotic? There probably was a time where I worried about it more. There was also a time there where where I think a a switch flipped for me where I decided that there are chaotic systems around me that it's more my job to try to navigate than to control. And so I think that this book probably had something to do with that. But I also think that that's something that I I had been getting towards over the years. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make me uncomfortable anymore to answer your question. Mm -hmm. I think it's really sad though. What is? That 
we don't get to control as much as we think we do, at least at this stage. Mm. And then it's also really sad that things that really hinge on us in the future being able to control things also feel like either impossible or much, much farther out of grasp. Things like, uh, uh, what's, what's the transhumanism? Mm -hmm. Those things become a lot harder whenever you take a look at like all of the things that you can't predict going wrong in whatever system you come up with mm -hmm. to, to try and keep people immortal or whatever. Like it's those kinds of things that I go like, man, I probably just, we probably just can't do these things, at least with what we have right now. So at least for the next hundred years that I have, <laughs> I have, I have over the years determined that. I'm going to try and find the best ways to deal with the noise, the chaotic systems in my life, than to try and control all of them. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a wise position. It's an interesting kind of counterbalance of forces. Mm -hmm. There's, There seems to be some sort of innate human drive to understand. Mm -hmm. And in that understanding, you tend to cut out sources of noise. Mm -hmm. Not like eliminate them, but you know more about where they're coming from and what they're doing and how they're affecting the system you're understanding. Mm -hmm. You could, in your mind, play that tape forward another thousand, two thousand years mm -hmm. to the point where we are Laplace's demon and we have built the supercomputer that can calculate every single thing that's going on on the earth. Yeah. But that's not how humans work. The the meat that we've got going on in our brains, yeah, has not evolved to be comfortable with the world in that way. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is an interesting counterbalance and it's something that you see kind of historically that as as you shed new light on things as you eliminate sources of perceived randomness mm -hmm. people become less comfortable generally in the world that they're living in so i wonder like you know that the whole notion of transhumanism let's say i wonder if we'll even get to the point where we could attempt something like that with what you're saying is the information level required to mm -hmm. predict how that's going to come out before we just go insane. <laughs> like every dystopian movie has some element of the all-seeing robot, right? Yeah. Or the all-knowing whatever that, that you cannot escape because it knows. Yeah. Like, am I wrong in that, in that dichotomy? Do you think that there is a more comfortable way that people can live with eliminating randomness? I might not completely understand exactly what you mean by it. Can you say again what you mean by the dichotomy? So there's the natural human drive to mm -hmm. want to eliminate randomness mm -hmm. through better understanding things. And that's usually a side effect of the goal that you're achieving, mm -hmm. right? So you want to make a system that does something specific mechanically as a side effect, you've eliminated randomness mm -hmm. in some ways versus the natural um, the necessity 
of randomness in a human's inner life. Mm-hmm. Like your perception of the universe or of your surroundings, I think has to contain levels of randomness to comfort you. Can, uh, I might. I think I see what you're saying. Would it also be fair to say that certain levels of uncertainty are what our like minds actually expect? And yes. so eliminating uncertainty as humanity goes to the, to the future indefinitely, mm-hmm. you're wondering if as we begin to understand more and more about how the world, or excuse me, the universe works, that we'll be breaking down what it means to be human and and really fighting against the natural tendency to deal with randomness that our brains are kind of built on. Yeah, I think that we're slowly creating an inhospitable environment for the human psyche where we're, we're taking these sources of chaos that mm-hmm. I think are comfortable and, it, you know, not we haven't done this completely yet, but play the tape for 2,000 years and put us in a totally different situation where at any point in time you can know, let's say... 90% of facts about the world that you're living in is that a a thing that you think will evolve to cope with the premise always is really difficult for me to get on board with anyway okay so i just have to throw out i have to throw out any notion that it's impossible to get to that point mm-hmm. in order to answer this question sure <laughs> um i uh Man, I really don't know. This feels like just a, it's like a totally foreign way to live. This is going to, the only way that I can think about this is in terms of uh, some fictional characters, like the Q in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. They are omniscient, all-powerful, immortal beings who have essentially figured everything out. And there's there's a point in Voyager where you discover that they don't like it. Mm-hmm. That they could be the humans 2,000 years from now type thing where they're just like, their lives don't have any meaning anymore because they've either tried everything or they know how everything is going to go. That I feel like might be the only, one of the only ways that I've seen the idea explained. And the outcome is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you asking this because you wonder if it's something that we should just be aware of? Or are you wondering if it's something that we should actively like fight to preserve uncertainty? Hmm. I don't think you'll have to fight to preserve uncertainty. I think there will be crazy people who want that. Mm. I do think, though, that it is something that is going to become a bigger part of mental health in the future. Mm. Is finding either ways to preserve uncertainty, ways Mm. to cope with too much certainty, um... Just, just ways to think that don't lead you to a completely depressive state because you're able to open up a box and see, like, this is my life? Great. 
You, I'm, I, what immediately came to mind is like a cancer patient nowadays. You mm-hmm. have a you have a fifty percent chance of survival or whatever. Mm-hmm. Two thousand years from now, a cancer patient would know a hundred percent if they're going to live or die when they find out they have cancer. If we haven't cured cancer, let's say yeah, well, whatever yeah, fair, the equivalent fair. of cancer in two thousand years is. Uh, gut lasers, gut lasers, hundred percent lethal, zero percent lethal. Right. That's that's a really interesting point that because people don't know how everything is going to go, they can at least convince themselves that it'll go the, the way that's nice for them, mm-hmm. even even in situations where that's really slim. Right. Oh, that's really... Ugh. And this is a bias that he talks about in the book, where people tend to overestimate their own ability mm-hmm. or their own expertise on certain things. But if you can eliminate the sources of that bias... I wonder how people will cope, if they will cope. Like, reflexively, you know, you're still going to go through the same stages of grief, mm-hmm. probably. In the case of the cancer, In the example. case of the gut lasers. Gut lasers, sorry. Right. Where they tell you, by the way, you've got gut lasers, here's the timestamp when you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, God. <laughs> I'm sure, like, you'd be like, that's not right. I'm going to get a second opinion. Or, like, the computer must be wrong. Uh, All of these, like, human rationalizations that we go through, Mm -hmm. even today, whenever we're presented with uncertainties Mm -hmm. that have a very high probability of being this specific outcome, Mm -hmm. people will still over-rationalize their ability to change that outcome, Mm -hmm. sometimes to great effect. Um, Like it actually works. Yeah. Sometimes they are able to change what everybody thinks is going to happen. That I feel like is 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 another bi- bias type that I think is mentioned in the book. If not, then it should have been. Um, which is, it is, at least at this stage, somewhat difficult to tell if what you're doing changed your odds or not. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't. It isn't directly related to your scenario, but I, I do think that's one of the other really important lessons for people. However, it does kind of lead to another question that I had, which is, you touched on it earlier. I don't think the book says much about this, but how should we deal with trying to plan for things if we kind of follow the the thought process of book lays out which is you technically can only measure things to a certain degree of accuracy and then even going forward they just become probabilities how if any do you think the book how do you think the book is saying the author feels people should deal with that or do you think they're not saying anything about how people should deal with that I don't think I got any like specific here's how to deal with those uncertainties mm-hmm. more than I just came away with a lot of like these are the human biases that we all have make sure that you're aware of these biases is psychologists are going to hate this <laughs> psychologists hate him for for social psychology psychology sociology especially are these systems that we at this stage just can't derive laws about like in a practical sense 
Is that one of the things that you conclude from this book, but also from your understanding of science and statistics and your worldview? Hmm. I ask this because I feel like there are times in this book where you've said he's argued both of the sides. I'm curious as to where you might fall between those, between a yes or no answer. I won't pretend to know like all of the problems that social psychology, for example, deals with. If we're boiling it down to generally, can you predict human behavior or mm -hmm. can you predict the behavior of groups of humans? Mm -hmm. The answer is obviously yes. Um, a large part of advertising is built around this. Mm -hmm. So it can be done how that translates into like some sort of fundamental codified set of laws of human nature mm. I think is much harder to come by mm. whereas with physics the thing do the thing we have a we have an equation for this we've pretty decent understanding of how the system will act given certain parameters that kind of thing a lot of that's been figured out a lot of it we think we understand and a lot of it is sort of a recursive relationship mm -hmm. where something like chemistry mm -hmm. has a body of laws and a body of, of known facts about chemistry, but those are all built on top of molecules and electromagnetism mm -hmm. and how those forces work and, and the weak force and the strong force. So chemistry is kind of an emergent mm -hmm. field that can have its own laws and its own uh, reasoning completely encapsulated within itself that does rely upon a lower level of machinery to operate. So if you're talking about like a fundamental codified set of laws for human nature mm -hmm. in social sciences, maybe one day we'll finally understand those, but I guarantee you, at least in my opinion, that that will recurse down a lower level to biology, which will recurse to a lower level to, you know, chemistry down to quarks and gluons and things like. I can't remember exactly who it was, and I don't believe it was in this book. I believe I read it somewhere else where there were. Oh, no, it was in one of the podcasts uh, with Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. It was a dude who was, who was talking about. Um, dependent domains of science or whatever. I can't remember mm. the exact terminology he used. Interesting. And don't get me wrong, there will always be emergent phenomena mm -hmm. that come out of going up that stack. Mm -hmm. So molecules are an emergent phenomena and the way that molecules interact have different rules that are emergent phenomena, but they're all based on the lower levels. Mm -hmm. So the, the laws of human nature might just be an emergent phenomenon of biology mm -hmm. and what happens when you get a sufficiently complicated neural network mm -hmm. we, we we probably have gone a little bit off the deep end with this but i think it i think it was a good it was a good uh tangent to go on because it helps put the book in a little bit of context that this guy is trying to raise some uh, uh, awareness of statistics and sociology and those kinds of things 
but in many ways he didn't make the connection to how you um, actually make decisions based on those things or how you come up with a set of rules for how humans work based on statistics. Mm-hmm. He didn't necessarily make that connection, which I feel like is an important takeaway from us reading the book, right? Yeah, it's absolutely just a wrapper around the very simple introduction of some statistical concepts. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, who do you think the book is for? Mm. Who should read this book? Morons. <laughs> well, I'm glad we read it then. <laughs> Whenever I first read the book, I remember having like a, a really good feeling about it. Like... I felt like it was a very important book for me at the time. I believe that I was still living at home, so I must have been in high school or whatever. Um, so it was like 2010 or something like that. It, it was a very different me then. So there's a chance that that was the kind of person that book was for, high school students, people mm-hmm. who, who were looking for... Um, an introduction into how chaotic systems work, how statistics work. I don't know, after reading it the second time, if I'm its core audience. Clearly, you're not its core audience. (laughs) I don't know if uh, science literature critics such as yourself are going to be our its target audience. Um, I mean, did you feel the same way about it? I'm just a guy with opinions. Clearly. I'm not a literature critic. Why are we doing this podcast? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> These are just some of my thoughts. Some of them are critical. Yeah. Go ahead and open up to page 209. 394. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to uh, read the first new paragraph on that page out loud for us. Our society can be quick to make wealthy people into heroes and poor ones into goats. That's why the real estate mogul Donald Trump, whose plaza hotel went bankrupt and whose casino empire went bankrupt twice, a shareholder who invested $10,000 in his casino company in 1994 would 13 years later have come away with $636, all in a parenthesis nevertheless dared to star in a wildly successful television program in which he judged the business acumen of aspiring young people. I did also read that segment with a bit of cringe because obviously it doesn't age well. Like, 2008, uh, Leonard Mladenow had no idea what was about to happen to the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Had no idea that I don't think he's wrong necessarily that it's like dudes dude has a fail at at one point or another had failing business ventures yet decides to join the apprentice which is kind of strange join the apprentice start the apprentice and then tries and succeeds at becoming president of the united states it doesn't necessarily if you're looking at it from a probabilistic viewpoint, those early failures could have told you that why would you even try for those big ones? Whereas clearly it didn't come out that way. He rolled the dice again 
and was successful. The thing that I think is so interesting about that paragraph mm-hmm. is actually the next sentence after it. Obviously, it can be a mistake to assign brilliance in proportion to wealth. Mm-hmm. Obviously. And he goes on to describe the cognitive bias whereby people, if you know somebody is being paid more than you, then you mm-hmm. defer to them more often. Mm-hmm. So obviously, enough people did not read this book. No. In 2008. It was a New York Times bestseller, but that doesn't mean uh, enough of the voting population of the United States. <laughs> or if they did, they might have just glossed right over that paragraph, yeah. like they did with seeing Donald Trump in Home Alone 2. Donald Trump was in Home Alone 2? He gives Kevin directions in the lobby of the Plaza Hotel. Okay. <laughs> That's not like necessarily... A, a, strike against this book i just wanted to it is a it is a very odd like not situation but like it's just a very odd thing to notice being where we are in history right now (laughs) yeah yeah it's funny that we're far enough into the future from when this is written that that history has come to be ironic So I do have one other question for you mm-hmm. before we uh, wrap up the Drunkard's Walk. Did you ever, after reading this, go look at any reviews or ratings online about the book? I can't remember, but I think I might have scanned the Amazon ratings or something. Uh-huh. But I don't. I think it was. I think it was more there because I was thinking about getting it on Kindle. So I, mm. you've seen my bag. I have three books in there, not, and it was getting full. So mm-hmm. I was like, can I drop one of these? Um, did you look at them? I did. How did how did that make you feel? Well, to avoid as much confirmation bias as possible, I wrote down what I thought first. Yeah. And then opened up Goodreads and went through the reviews. Mm-hmm. There is an overwhelming amount of support for the book. Mm. And of the supporters, I only read maybe 30 Mm. of the reviews out of the several hundred that there are on the page. But the overwhelming proportion of the 30 were non-mathematical, non-scientific. Some of them not very seemingly like highly educated at all. Like, or at least the way that they wrote the review didn't couldn't give you the idea that they were, I'm guessing. Seemingly, yeah. yeah. So from, from appearances, people that are self-professed, I don't like math, I don't like science, but this book was fun mm-hmm. and interesting to read. So clearly, this was a good book to have had written and put out into the world. I, I, I can't argue with that. In my mind. I feel like when, earlier when you asked me about who who I thought that this book was for, that at least helped to support that to mm-hmm. me. Um, I'm guessing that a lot more of them were adults rather than high schoolers that were writing the reviews because I, 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 I have an impression that Goodreads is, is a lot more of like human adults rather than human larva. Yeah, it seemed more adulty. And the people... Who had criticisms of it some of them were 
interesting because they were saying things like this book is so inaccessible. Like really? I was able to follow him up until he started getting into the Pascal's triangle stuff and then he lost me with all that math. So that's like the complete opposite of your concerns with the book. Yeah. Wow. That's like the souls who cannot be saved. <laughs> Would you say that the probability is very low that they can be saved? It's very low. Interestingly, the book's ratings do not follow a normal distribution. <laughs> they, they probably follow the internet distribution. Right. Lots of one stars, lots of five stars. Very little three stars. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Leonard Mladenow of two thousand seven two thousand eight would have known about internet distributions. There's got to be a name for that distribution, right? There but, has to be, because because that would have been a really interesting one to have in the new edition of the book. Right. Unfortunately, they cut all mentions of statistics yeah. and hard science from the book. True. Maybe a different edition. Maybe we'll split it into two editions. And they added more stories about syphilis. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So, I gave it my, at the top of the show, four out of seven, Daniel Scale rating. What uh, What do you give it? You said a three or a four out of seven. I do. Three if I'm being uncharitable. Ah, <laughs> oh, goodness. I think listeners are going to find that the scale makes less and less sense to actually use, because I always, I always skew towards a more positive... Right. outlook on things it's probably a five okay it was fine especially i feel like it helped reading it a second time helped me understand like a little bit more of where my head was when i first read it mm -hmm. and how like i'm not quite the same person but like i said there were some things about it that i still enjoyed even though i didn't like feel like it was as important the second time around um there's a common conception of my attachment to this book in our friend group i feel like okay and I think it's very safe to say after rereading it that it's a good book. It's not a life-changing book like some people think it is. But we can't actually, like, I can't actually give the answer to you that easily. I have to first go through several paragraphs of explaining how the human eye works. Okay. And how there's a blind spot in the middle of it. Yeah. And in that blind spot is the number five out of the seven scale. Thanks for tying it back into the metaphor. That's important. <laughs> is it really, though? <laughs> I think it's fair to say that it was it was worth our time to to see what this book was about. That's another way I could say it. Sure. And I think it does tell me that if Leonard Mladenow has written other books on topics that I'm not very familiar with at all, that they would probably be good introductory reads to a subject. So I think it's safe to say that we could recommend The Drunkard's Walk to anybody who doesn't really understand probability or only understands it on the fringes. I would agree. We have successfully laid it to rest. Our first book, our first nonfiction book. It was, an ex it was a very interesting experience to see how that would work with this podcast. But now I believe that we need to take the time to pick what our next topic is going to be yep uh before we actually started recording you were talking to me about a proposed change that you want to do can you explain that yes so after reading this book on probability it occurred to me 
that we're rolling a d4, a four-sided die, after the end of every episode. So chances are eventually we will hit a streak of we're going to do two or more episodes on just the same media back to back. So I'm proposing that we change to using a d6 and then rolling it that to choose from the remaining three categories which we did not just do. So since this time we did books, next time we would either do a movie, a TV show, or a game. I'm game for it. We have here a d6. Can you prove to the audience that we have a d6? So um, what numbers correspond to what categories? So 1 and 2 will be games. 3 and 4 will be movies. And 5 and 6 will be television shows. Let's do it. I, I, I await. 1. We're doing a game. So I think this is going to be Blade Runner 2050 whatever. <laughs> so I know that's the stupid question you're about to ask. I wasn't going to ask you a stupid question. I was going to ask you a real question. Okay. Which is, are you okay with buying another console? Yeah. yeah we've, 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 we've discussed that before. I'm yeah. cool. I just want to make sure, since you know you flew all the way out to Seattle just to record this episode. That was the only reason, actually. It's a pretty expensive thing to do. So I wanted to be money conscious there. Okay, good. Then it should come to no surprise to you that I'm very interested in playing and hearing your thoughts about the new God of War. Ooh, okay, cool. Go! What? God of War. G-O-W. Go! (laughs) Cool. Yeah, I can make that a thing. Now I'll have a PS4. Yeah, you'll have them all. Whenever I got my Switch, I was on on, like the fence between the two. But now I just get to do both. (laughs) You're doing it for work. You don't have to decide. Yeah, for a job that doesn't currently pay anything. Currently. Statistically, at some point, it'll pay us something. I don't know that we can say that the probability space has anything right now, like any outcome by which we were being paid. Well, look at our last joint venture. We got paid. What I'm saying is that currently, as the as the world is configured right now, right, we have no outcomes in our probability space. Therefore, we have a zero percent chance of getting paid. Well, I have been to the Panopticon, and the chances are high. Earth is a panopticon. It's a pan all opta seeing con. I think it's I. I don't know. <laughs> it's the all seeing viewing room. A panopticon is where you like go so that way you can see. It's like Sauron's eye. Is this in God of War or something? No. Huh, this okay. is like in dystopian fiction. I uh, I would like to go there someday with you. <laughs> so I, I too can see all things in all directions. Like an owl. Great. Or like a rabbit, more like. Things that things that get hunted have eyes that are more on the sides. They have a wider range of eyesight. Well, thanks everybody for listening. <laughs> <laughs>
this has been a, another really fun live podcast. Uh, hopefully, you guys also make uh, get a chance to read The Drunkard's Walk and play God of War for our next episode. And don't forget to come to the subreddit that we're going to stand up, rescast, R-E-S-C-A-S-T dot reddit dot com. And eventually, our website, rescast.fm. Bye. Bye.